Father, sometimes we just get overwhelmed with how much you love us. God, you can catch us off guard in the, in the hustle and bustle of our lives, God. When we think we're too busy for you, and uh, God, we just think that that there's no place for you in our lives sometimes. But God, sometimes you show up in ways that we don't expect. Uh, God, we thank you for that. Father, I pray that, um, that God, you would just show us where it is in our lives that you're trying to show your love. God, those places that you're trying to show up to give us opportunities to experience you. Father, I pray that we would open our eyes to what you're trying to do. God, show us what your purpose is. Teach us how to live in that purpose. God, you loved us while we were still sinners when we didn't deserve it. God, you sent your son to die on a cross. And by grace, you saved us. God, and for that, we're thankful. Father, I pray that you would teach us something tonight, something different than we've heard before, God. Open our hearts to your word. Thank you, your son's name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. We are in the book of Mark, if you want to turn, turn or churn, either one, to Mark chapter 3. <clears throat> we'll be finishing out chapter 3. I'm, I'm going to be out of town next week. Um, I'm famous, if you don't know, and so famous people get to take vacations. Uh, so we just pulled that off. So I'll be gone next Sunday night. Ray Harmon will be here. Uh, Ray Harmon, who planted City Church in the Allen area, will be here uh, next week. And so he's going to be speaking in chapter 4, the beginning of, and so it... When I gave him his passage, it then pushed me to finish out the rest of chapter 3 so that we'll be caught up to that point. Anyway, so the book of Mark, uh, if you'll turn to chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 7. But I'm going to back up uh, as we do uh, every Sunday night and just do kind of a recap. But back all the way back to chapter 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way, a voice of the one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight <clears throat> paths for him. And we went back and we went through the, the book of Malachi as it asked the question, where is the God of justice that, that then led us to, here we have Mark and we have the coming of the God of justice because the answer back in Malachi was he is coming. I'm going to take care of you, repent, turn, come back to God, and he is coming. And now in the book of Mark, he is here. And as we've walked through just the story of Jesus, Mark is a gospel is the story of Jesus presenting the story of God redeeming man through Jesus Christ as, as Mark writes to Gentiles. And again, we've talked about the highlight. The main point that happens in Mark is that Mark is defending the divinity of Jesus because Mark is writing to pagan people, Gentiles, mostly Romans, who would have identified someone who's crucified automatically with a criminal. That was the ultimate price to pay if you're a criminal. You've done the worst things. We're now going to hang you on a tree. And then these people begin to hear a story about here's a man who came, who's supposed to be the son of God, that they hung on a tree. Well, automatically that connects a criminal. So Mark writes to these people and begins to argue and defend the divinity of Jesus. And so we're going to pick up Mark chapter 3, verse 7, as we walk through this story. And just to take one step back, as we ended last week in verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And so... 
last week we walked through, they were, they were dealing with issues of the Sabbath and what Jesus was doing. He would go on on the Sabbath, he healed a man who had a withered hand, and there was an issue with the Pharisees there because they're sitting in the, they're sitting there in their worship facility in the synagogue, and Jesus has walked in on the Sabbath day, and they are waiting and wondering and watching to see whether or not Jesus is going to do something that they think he should not do. Last week we talked about traditions and being constricted by traditions and held down and for certain reasons. Anyways, that's, I don't know what I'm trying to tell you. I'm sorry. I'm trying to do a recap. And I can't get it out right now. So you've got traditions. You've got the Sabbath. And Jesus is dealing with it. So these, these people are watching and waiting for ways to accuse Jesus. And so Jesus goes in on the Sabbath day. He heals a man's hand and says, hey, I'm supposed to do what's good. Regardless of what you think, regardless of what your traditions say, regardless of anything. So he walks out and Pharisees and Herodians begin to plot together to kill Jesus, which is going to play out here in a minute. We have, last week, I should have done this. We've got a few different figures that show up to the gospel. We've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then the Herodians. The way those three groups work, the Pharisees are a religious leading community. They're trained, they're brought up, they're educated. These are, these are bright young men, educated through their system and educated in the law. They will then lead, direct, mentor, guide. They will be those you look to for spiritual guidance. Now, the Sadducees are going to be much the same, but they have different viewpoints. They have some arguments going on. Those two arguments come into play. One is came from this right here because we're talking about the oral tradition and how they explain how do we Sabbath. What are we supposed to do because God is not clear. What does that look like? And so there was a belief that God was God gave Moses an oral tradition that then they then passed down. Well, the Sadducees did not buy into that. And so the Sadducees and Pharisees separated, not only that, but they didn't believe that there was a, a bodily resurrection later on in an afterlife. They, the Sadducees believed what you're living now is all there is. Yes, there's a God, and we're, we're made and all that, but they didn't believe in anything after they died. And so there's a separation on those two things. And then the Herodians were those who, more than likely, it's a political party who are loyal to Herod's family uh, and just the furthering of, of that family in that line of kings. So you've got those three who are playing. The Pharisees and the Herodians are beginning to conspire together. How are we going to accuse and kill Jesus now? Again, because Jesus came in on the Sabbath and healed somebody. I mean, that's a, wow, why did you do that? And so that they're going to go further into why they were thinking or what they're thinking here in a minute. But verse 7, so verse 7, chapter 3, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. So here we have Jesus once again. This is like the third or fourth time we've seen Jesus by a body of water withdrawing and crowds coming to him. Large crowd follows from Galilee. Verse 8, when they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, um, Idumea, I hope that's right, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. So you have, not only is it just the, the, the area of Galilee and Capernaum now, where thousands of people are gathering around Jesus to hear him teach and to bring their sick and for them to be healed, but now it has spread even further. It spread across the Jordan, it spread to Tyre, it spread to Sidon, and then the word that I tried to pronounce, Idumea, excuse me, is a, used to be Edom. And this would take us all the way back to uh, to Malachi, Old Testament, this would have been Edom. And Edom is the nation that comes from Esau. And the first question that comes up in Malachi is the nation of Israel is being addressed by God and they're being convicted and, the, and they're being told you're living in the wrong manner. Their first response is, how have you loved this God? Because that's how he, he begins the conversation. God says, I love you. And they say, how have you done it? And God says in response to them, Jacob I have chosen and Esau I have hated. Or Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. 
and this idea of a choosing and rejection. And here you have a people group from Edom who are now gathering around Jesus. We go all the way back to just after Abraham. In the beginning of family, this community of God, as God begins to relate to man through a people group. And you have the, the man who an entire nation comes out of that is rejected by God to the point where God even says, I have hated Esau, which it's, it's a highlighting of his rejection and the choosing of Jacob at the same time. God's saying, I hate this people group. But yet at the same time, thousands of years later, you have Jesus is teaching by a body of water and there are people coming, a remnant of those folks are coming from that land to hear Jesus, to be healed by Jesus, to hear this message to be loved, for Jesus to feel compassion on. And this plays into this argument as we've walked through the book of Mark, this idea of who Jesus loved and who Jesus would reach out to. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Levi. Jesus walks up to a tax collector booth and says to Levi, come and follow me. And he goes to his house and he sits down with Levi and tax collectors and sinners and he eats with them. And, he eats with them. and the Pharisees look at that and they go, what are you doing? These people are unholy. They're unclean. Why are you here? And here again you have Jesus with thousands of people around him. But it's, this one's just, it's very interesting because you have folks who are unclean that are rejected by God, are coming to Jesus to hear this message, to find healing, to find compassion, to find love. And again, it's just another highlight throughout the story of Mark. How do we respond as a church community? How do we respond as followers of Jesus? We love those who are ungodly. One of the biggest things that our New Testament does, and the biggest thing that Scripture does, is the three things that we've talked about, three main points that Scripture communicates. It communicates who God is, who man is, and how we respond to that dynamic. Once we get past the faith issue of buying into Jesus and aligning ourselves with, okay, then what does it mean to follow Jesus? Our New Testament is very clear. There are two basic things you have to do as a follower of Jesus, and it's love God and love people. And that love of people is not described, is not shown to us by Jesus as those who are easy to love. Those who would, we would want to love. It includes those people, but it's also those outside of. And more often than not, it is the people outside of what we're comfortable with. It's outside of the typical middle to upper class, white home, everything's great. We've got a couple of kids that don't do anything wrong. Dad's got a good job. The relationship's good with mom and dad. Here we go. We're raising good kids. That's an easy family to be around. Absolutely. But that is not the typical picture of who Jesus reaches out to throughout the New Testament. The people in the families who are broken. It is the people in the families who those who are the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees will look at and say, not only what are you doing, these people are unclean, but to the point where they go, what are you doing? We're going to kill you, you heretic. It's to that extent. Most of our following Jesus is not to the extent of those around us are now uncomfortable or are now angry or are now mad or are now questioning your moral compass and decision making. And they should be. 
Because a large majority, or I say a large majority, there is a number of those inside what is called the Christian community who would look at those we're supposed to love and say, no, you're wrong. Are we stepping out and doing that? Are we loving those that we're supposed to be? And, and that's been that's been a constant. Each passage we look at, that comes out to play. And Jesus is always loving those who are broken, loving those who are offensive to those around. So, people coming from Tyre said on verse 9, because the crowd he told, excuse me, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding around him or for, literally from crushing him. So again, we have Jesus being surrounded by, before, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we had Jesus, he's in a house in Capernaum, and he's surrounded by hundreds of people inside this house. We talked about houses not being the typical four-bedroom, and, you know, that'll hold, I don't know, if, if you took my house, which is 2,200 square feet, and you put 50 people in it, it would be packed out, and my wife would go crazy, and I would too, and we don't want to do that. We used to have a small group in our house, and we are like, God, not again. I know, there were two-year-olds everywhere with Cheetos and pizza and it just, it was, it was very difficult. And then we started selling that service and we don't have to host a small group anymore. The Lord. If nothing else, we're going to keep doing the service so I don't have to do that. I'm sorry. I think small groups are great. If you're not in one, please find one. We have a great group of them. Go get them. Yeah, no Cheetos. Don't bring your Cheetos to small groups. Anyways, but, um, so again, we have this picture. Jesus is teaching and thousands are coming. And at this point, Jesus says, hey, get me a boat so I can move back because he is physically in danger now. He's now that popular that he's physically in danger of a crowd physically crushing him because they are packing in on him, not just to hear teaching, not just to find compassion, but the point where you've got people who have... Um, Sufferings and torments is going to say diseases are coming, and they're pressing towards him just to touch him to find healing. Verse 10, it says, um, crushing in verse 10, for he had healed many so that those with diseases or with sufferings or torments were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell before him and cried out, you are the son of God, but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. So again, you have this picture of thousands of people now crowding around Jesus. He says, hey, get me a boat. So I can back up, so I can teach these people, so I can love them, so I can have compassion. People are being healed. And then again, we see a picture of Jesus is casting out demons. And this, is, this has been the process. Jesus shows up. He teaches, loves people. He heals those who are sick, and he casts out demons. That's, what he's, that's his ministry right there. Here we go. Boom. Pretty simple. And again, we see, this is whenever the unclean or evil spirits saw him, they fall down and they cry out and make verbal confessions you are the Son of God. That's a standard reaction of those who are demon the demons that are possessing. Standard reaction is, you are the Son of God. Oh my goodness. Which again, makes the same point, and if you feel like this is repetitive, it's because it is. But this idea of just making a verbal confession, just making an agreement about who Jesus is, does not place you in a right relationship with God. There is a component of aligning yourself with Jesus. I'm not advocating here you have a list of things you have to do to earn salvation, to earn forgiveness, because you can't. That's clear in our New Testament. Paul is very clear. Our faith is received 
or our, our salvation is received by grace through our faith in Christ. I'm not arguing against that. But what I am saying is there's a component of aligning yourself with Jesus. It's not just a verbal confession or an agreement. I'm buying into who Jesus is. Yes, Jesus, Son of God, I'm good. Let's wrap this thing up. This is the third time we've seen it. And we're only in chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark. This is the third time it showed up. Jesus has an encounter with a demon who makes a verbal confession. You are the Son of God. Does he find redemption? Do they find redemption? No. It still plays out in eschatology for them in eternal torment. Whatever that looks like. It's not the discussion today. And so again, this idea, there is a component about aligning yourself with Jesus. And it's very interesting that what will follow, so you have this confession made, or confessions made by the demons. Jesus strictly says, do not tell who I am. And then in verse 13 it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. So you have a shift. You have a very symbolic and positional shift because Jesus is, throughout Mark, often by a lakeside and it's a, I don't want to say casual, because he's still doing very divine things. He's healing people. He's teaching. He's bringing the kingdom of God right now and revealing to people, this is how God is now going to relate, is now going to fix, is now going to correct the dilemma between God and man. So it's a very heavy ministry what he's doing. However, there's, a, there's an even heavier shift because there's kind of a casual idea, I'm by a lake, I'm in a boat, I'm teaching, I'm healing, I'm having compassion. And then he moves to a mountainside. And being on a mountain or on a mountainside is usually very symbolic of God making specific revelation about what is next. And so he moves to a mountainside and says, he calls to them those he wanted, and they came to him. Verse 14, he appointed twelve, designating them apostles. And so now in the storyline, you have a specific designation of 12 men who will follow Jesus, 11 of which will play out in the changing of the face of the world, literally. Which is very interesting, again, because the, the, the part of the story just before, Jesus is by a lake, and he's teaching, he's healing, he's having compassion, he's loving, and thousands upon thousands of people are gathering around to the point where he's going to be physically injured, if not killed, because so many people are coming. And then there's a symbolic move to a mountainside, from a lake to a mountainside, and that number of thousands is focused in on 12. It goes from huge to very small very quickly. It says he designates them apostles that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And so Jesus makes a focus now on those who are following him. There there are multiple followers of Jesus and, and the crowd is not always the same. Crowds coming from different places, different families, different people, different people who are sick, all those things. But there's there's an, a group of people believed to be following within that group. And from that group, Jesus takes and he pulls 12 who will then walk closely with Jesus throughout the rest of his ministry, learning, building theology, beginning to understand, and God beginning to move in them to use them to share the gospel with the world. What's, what's very interesting and what I want to pull out of this, which is moving this over for, again, this concept of, okay, what do we do now? How to respond to the New Testament playing out? Okay, here's how you respond to God. 
here are things that are important. This is what you do. This is how you worship. This is how you measure all those great things. Jesus focuses in on 12 guys. At one point in Jesus' ministry, he is surrounded to the point where he's going to be killed because there are so many people coming to him. It's very interesting, if you go fast forward all the way to Acts 1, when Jesus has been crucified, he's raised, he's done roughly a month month appearing to people and, and kind of bringing about what's, what's going to happen next. He meets with his disciples, he ascends to heaven, he says, go back and wait in Jerusalem, pray, and the promised one is going to come, and what's, what's next is going to come, go and wait. And we see there are 120 people left. There are 11 disciples you got 12, then you got Judas goes and hangs himself, so you have 11 who are left, and then another roughly 120 people who are waiting on what God is going to do next. Jesus went from thousands upon thousands to 120. If we were to take those numbers and we were to slap them on a wall or on paper or on a projector in American church today, that's called failure. Jesus would have had a building way too big for 120 people. And they might as well shut the door. What is the point that I'm trying to make? There are times that we as Americans in our culture, in our churches, we get confused about what's important. We get confused about what's success in a church. If you walk into a church that has a new building, that has a lot of money, that has a great staff, that has good teachers, that has attractive people at the front, much like myself, who end up on magazine. Um, actually, I, uh, I picked two of those. One I'm going to mail to my mom, and the other I'm mailing to my uncle. His name is Russ, but I call him Larry, and he's this tall. And Larry had to stand on a big boy box one time for a photo with my dad and his other brother, and I'm going to write and say to my favorite uncle Larry, because he hates it when you call him Larry, and then I'm going to tell him I did not use a big boy box. So Larry's the only other pastor uh, figure in our in our family, so it's it's a good jab for old Larry. Anyways, I don't know why I told you that, but I wanted to. I'm excited about it. They called Dad told me. Anyways, again, nothing to do with any of this. Um, but but we get in this mindset. <clears throat> We walk in, big buildings, great music, great teaching, all these, and thousands of people are coming. You're doing things right. To a degree, maybe, sure. And we feel good about that. That's not how Jesus played it. Thousands of people would come to Jesus because he was an amazing teacher. He taught with authority beyond what they'd ever heard before. Why? Because he was God. He loved people that no one else loved. He spent time with people that no one else would spend time with. He had compassion. He healed people that were that could not be healed. He did things that were undoable. And so thousands of people came to him. But his response to that often was saying something that then turned thousands of people away. To say, if you're going to be my follower, then you need to pick up your cross and you need to walk in the footsteps behind me. And then he's crucified. Thousands of people say, I'm out. The message Jesus brings is not, hey, follow me, and it's all going to be great. You're going to be wealthy and healthy and successful. Here we go. No. 
Jesus calls men to align themselves with him and make a self-sacrifice and give yourself for the kingdom of God. To love God, to love people at whatever it costs you. And that turns thousands away. But we don't measure that way. We don't think that way. We don't put ourselves in that mindset. But Jesus turns, goes from thousands and says, I'm going to focus on twelve. Eleven of which who will change the world. Goes on it enlists verse fourteen. Uh, they might be with him, and they might <clears throat> that he might send them out to preach. Verse fifteen, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed: Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter; James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother. To them he gave the names. Um, oh goodness, Honoragus or something, which means the sons of thunder. I should have I should have studied pronunciation on that. I'm sorry. I apologize. I will never do that to you again. Verse eighteen: Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Which, if anybody had bad publicity that was not, that was not good, it was Judas. Because everybody remembers Judas, the guy that betrayed Jesus. Yeah, he's very popular, but nobody likes him. Even people that aren't good don't even like Judas. Anyways, regardless. So, here are your list of your twelve, which some of the names, if you, if you look at our other list, it's not like exact map, massage, matches. And so you have maybe some traditions that are being used to name, not changes, uh, in terms of people, but just references to these people, just like Levi does not show up in here, and Jesus just called Levi, but we know Levi's a part, and so it believed to be Matthew, and so you've got some interchanging with names. Regardless, Jesus focuses in on twelve. He goes from thousands. I'm going to focus on twelve to teach theology, to teach living, to teach following God, to teach this is what God is now doing. I'm focusing on these men to send out, to preach, to give power, to do all these things. Verse 20 says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So again, we have this, the storyline goes, you've got Jesus, large crowd, small crowd, large crowd, small crowd. And he goes back and forth, and sharing the gospel, and then bringing together and teaching. And so we have a move again, he goes into a house, and once again, this idea of defending the divinity of Jesus, you have the Son of God, obviously he's going to attract to a lot of people. So he walks in, people hear, and we're surrounding once again to the point where they're not able to eat. This may be the same house that he was in earlier when it says he entered in a house in Capernaum. Regardless, verse 21, when his, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. That's fantastic. All right, Jesus is in a house, thousands of people are around again. He's teaching and healing people. Our son's crazy. Go get him. Again, moving these things over and just getting this idea of what does it mean to follow Jesus. And it's a very hard concept. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means you do what Jesus did. Which means at times you're going to offend people. Which means at times you could do something that even your family looks at and goes, you are crazy. And you've got to be okay with that. I have my, my best friend growing up, his dad... Um, the last couple of years, his mom passed away a few years ago, and his dad was a prosthetic man, owned a business, um, prosthetic business. They went from Amarillo, and they moved to Colorado, and he owned a few more businesses there. And just where he was a hardworking hard guy, family man, a hunter, very successful in what he did. And after uh, Jason's mom had passed, God began to work in his heart on what does it really mean for me to follow Jesus? And about a year and a half into that, John decided, I'm going to sell everything that I have 
and I'm going to move overseas, and I'm going to be a missionary. Man's in his 60s. How many people in their 60s go from prosthetics to missionary work? From America. Yeah, now one. Not only that, I mean, again, the guy's 60. He's on the backside of his career. His kids are now married. They're having kids. What do you do as a father? And now a grandfather. Who are you supposed to be? What what are you supposed to do? The male role in America as now a 60-year-old man is you love your wife and you go hang out with your grandkids. Coach some baseball. Enjoy life. There's nothing wrong with that. And John goes, I'm going to sell every possession I have, even your inheritance, and I'm going to move to share the gospel. Many families would look at it and go, Dad, you're out of your mind. I'm worried about you. I'm going to bring you home. Jesus' family hears and says, I... You are out of your mind. We're coming to get you and bring you home. Verse 22, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Belzebubal, by the prince of the demons, and is driving out demons. So here you have, if we went back to verse 6, and you've got the, are you laughing at me for my pronunciation? I don't even care. Because I'm going to make a point that you don't know yet about this name. And I may not be able to say it, but I can tell you something really cool about it. You like that, didn't you? Don't laugh at me. Totally throws me off. Like, I, I'm fine unless it's you. You're the only one that can distract me now. I can't get back. <laughs> oh my God. Stop. Alright, he's possessed by the big B. By the prince of the demons. He is, he's driving out demons. If we go back there in, in what we talked about last week, the end of verse 6, you've got the Pharisees and the Herodians are now plotting to accuse Jesus of something. Because he's healing people, he's doing things on the Sabbath he shouldn't be doing. And so now they've come up with their plan. They call Jerusalem, get Jerusalem on the phone. We need the guys from Jerusalem to come down. And this this was a, probably a standard practice. You've got the Pharisees, you've got those who are well-educated, those who are running things around in different communities. And when a big issue comes up, you get people from Jerusalem to come down and monitor the situation. Or, or to come up in this case. And so they've gone from, they, they've gotten a hold of these folks. Pharisees have come now from Jerusalem and they walk in and they say, this man is possessed. Not only that, but they also use this term, the big B, believed to be the Lord of, and actually the, the actual reference is literally the Lord of the flies, meaning the, the demon or the Lord of the dung heap. And so, it, I mean, it's not a positive thing. It's in a reference to pagan gods and the Lord of the pagan gods. Which also, I mean, as we go further, Jesus clearly defines what he's being accused of and answering it. It, it. Not only is it Lord of the dung heap, but also this reference to to Satan, the evil one, and they're saying this man is using evil means to cast out demons, which was a death offense. That's why you have people from Jerusalem, Pharisees from Jerusalem, now come in this accusation, we're going to show up and if this is actually happening, if magic is being used from evil, we can now kill this man. And so this is their first plan in how we're going to do this. And so verse 23 says, So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions 
unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of the men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is, uh, he is guilty, excuse me, of an eternal sin. And so his address now of this accusation is, that's not possible. A house cannot stand if it's divided. In order to, to rob a strong man, you have to have a stronger man who comes in, ties him up, and then can take all of his stuff. That's how it works. Jesus uses, not only this, he uses specific reference on Satan, but then he uses this parable about a strong man, basically laying out and saying, anybody with any sense at all would know that this isn't possible. So again, you have this defense of the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is able to cast out demons, not because he's possessed by Satan, but because he has stronger authority and power than Satan does. The reference of the strong man and the stronger man is to Jesus and Satan. We're going to symbolically link the two. It's, it's very clear. And Jesus argues, I have this authority, I have this ability, not because I'm possessed by Satan, but because I am stronger than. And, and as the story plays out, it's giving the picture Jesus as the Son of God, the divinity of Jesus being defended. He can cast out demons because he's the Son of God. God has now shown up. Where's the God of justice? He's right here. He's bringing out redemption of man. Not only that, he's now overthrowing the reign of Satan and control and influence over mankind. He goes further and says, all the sins and blasphemies uh, of men will be forgiven. In verse 29, it says, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse uh, verse 30, and then he said, he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. And so Jesus then very likely points to these men and says, you're making a rejection of God to the point where you're not going to be forgiven. This may be a very harsh statement directed specifically to these Pharisees from Jerusalem saying, you're now out. Which is huge. What are the theological implications on this? Um, most would argue, and I think I would say most, most on the conservative side would argue this whole reference of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rejection of Jesus, rejection of God's plan to redeem us. But for these men specifically, this may have already happened. There, there may be no turning back. It's not totally clear, but he specifically says it to them in reference and in response to what they are doing. They may be already out, Again, which is very heavy. But what do we pull out of this whole thing? Once again, argument of Jesus is the Son of God. The whole story that Mark presents is that Jesus is the Son of God who has showed up to bring about the redemption of man. He has compassion. He has love. The biggest thing we take out of so far, once again, is who are we loving and how are we doing that? Jesus has compassion on those who date all the way back to Esau that says God hated, but yet he shows love and compassion and he heals them. Who are we loving? Moving that storyline, Jesus focuses in from thousands to twelve. What is our perspective as a church, as a body, as a community, what is important to us? 
Should it be numbers and money and buildings and all those things? Absolutely not. The emphasis that we should place, the measure that we should place, are we doing a good job? Are we doing what God has called us to? Are we loving people who aren't being loved? Are we making a difference for those who have need? And do we give focus and attention and bring about help and maturity and encouragement for those who have lined themselves and said, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus? Regardless of how many people show up. And then that last piece is just the theological concept that Jesus is the Son of God and the rejection of Jesus ultimately brings about the destruction of that person. For these men, it may be playing out during their life. The whole point of Jesus showing up is so that we can find forgiveness, correction, redemption. And to reject that is to continuing being an enemy of God in fighting ultimate destruction, being an eternal thing. I'm going to pray. Um, Chris is going to come back up and, and, and lead us in worship. Dear God, we come here now. Just thank you for another night to come together to worship you, to learn from your word. God, we pray for opportunities uh, to love people this week. We pray that you will um, help us to be aware of those around us that we can love, that we can reach out to, that we can have compassion on God. We pray that you will use us, uh, give us strength, understanding, wisdom, in order to do that, to make an impact for your kingdom. God, we thank you for the love you've given us, the forgiveness, uh, love you've given us, the forgiveness you've given us, the ability to know you, to have a relationship with you, to find peace, hope, fulfillment. God, again, we just thank you, praise, and worship you for all you are. In your name we pray. Amen.